0: Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast.
1: Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, maha ben. namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2023. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. So today, I'm going to introduce you to a company that offers products with such intriguing flavors as rosehip, chrysanthemum honey, ginger, and cranberry. The company is Koval Distillery, and I'm very excited to speak with our distinguished guest, Dr. Sonnet Birnicka Hart, co-founder and president. Prior to opening Koval Distillery, one of the largest independent and woman-owned craft distilleries in the U.S., she spent over a decade as a full professor in both the United States and Germany. In 2008, she gave up her tenure in hopes of a different quality of life, one that would afford an opportunity for her to work with her husband, give up commuting, and return to the city she loved, Chicago. So uh, we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) But first, a word from our sponsor. We are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurants entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-V-Y, commercial.com, and I'll post it on our website. Now back to the show. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our guest. Hello, Sonnet. Welcome to the podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, Betsy. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, this is great. Uh, we're gonna begin, if it's okay, with your background story and that of your husband, Dr. Robert Binnaker, before you know, before you created Covol. Just a little background.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, there are many chapters in life and (laughs) ours didn't start with a distillery. It started with us having completely different careers. I was a professor. My husband was the deputy press secretary for the Austrian embassy. We were both living in the DC area. Uh, But we were finding ourselves spending a lot of time commuting, Um, you know, our friends lived in a tri-state area and they would leave in the same cycle as all the NGOs and, and, uh, embassies would rotate their staff. So yeah. it it didn't feel like the kind of um, environment that we wanted to raise children in. It's a great place, um, but we wanted to be somewhere that felt a little more settled. And so I'm from Chicago. I love Chicago. Luckily, my husband also uh, loves Chicago. And so we decided that we would uh, figure out what that next chapter would be in Chicago. And yeah. so in, in trying to determine that, you know, our careers were not going to continue with us in yeah. this new environment. And so it became an opportunity to find something new. And we decided on distilling in part because Robert grew up distilling as part of his chores when he would be with his grandparents. They have a Bye. distillery and winery in Austria but it was also something that seemed like it really wasn't being done that much. Uh, There were very few craft distilleries in the United States when we got started, which was tail end of 2007, and 2008, when we first actually uh, used our still. In fact, there were under 50 in the entire United States. And when you compare that to a country like Austria, where there were around 20,000, you see yeah. that our distilling industry was very um, focused on just a few companies that tended to make everything that we drank. Yeah. And so we saw that as a great opportunity to Absolutely. make something different, yeah. And to sort of follow uh, the traditions of his grandparents um, making craft you know, spirits, handmade from start to finish.
1: Yes. So, Yes. Two things I want to say. First of all, I think it's, I love sharing the story of your transition because so many families deal with, um, you know, is the career I thought I was going to have really the best now that I'm in a different stage in life and I have a family and, you know, so uh, actually you know, something like that happened with my family. I I have a, a business where I work out of the home now, mm-hmm. export consultant. I've been doing this now for 26 years, but I'm sure you found the same thing. The flexibility I had when my children were little by having my own business, uh, I, you know, I'm just so grateful for that. So, so I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's a great story. Um, and um, um, and also I have a question. Um, I'm more familiar with craft, the craft beer industry, uh, which is newer, or were they on the same trajectory? Craft beer and craft, you know, distilling of your type. Um, I'm sure. just curious.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, craft brewing came first. Okay. Uh There was a very large craft brewing wave that started, I guess, in the late 70s and and throughout the 80s, you had a lot of growth and development in the craft brewing sector, still continued through the 90s, um, you know, and now I I don't know if it's as robust, you know, where you're getting as many um, every month starting all over the U.S., but certainly there was a very large wave of craft brewing. Craft distilling, however, was not able to have that kind of growth and development, you know, and still can't because it's a federal offense to distill at home. So you can very easily, um, you know, sometimes you have to get certain licenses, but it's, it's relatively easy to become a home brewer. So that kind of grows the industry with hobbyists who decide that they love brewing their own beer at home and their friends and neighbors love it too. And yeah. then it grows from there, but with distilling, that's impossible. So you have to be really committed. The equipment's incredibly expensive. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's It's not, you know, something that can happen, you know, in a home environment legally at all. And so there was a large barrier to entry and i would say that there was an even larger psychological barrier to entry because no one was really doing it there were very few craft distillers as i said and they were mostly some small ones in california you had a few in in new york um but it it just really wasn't something that was done and even when we got started and went to our distributors i mean people made jokes you know uh that that about about distilling because they, they just could not imagine that someone would just start a distillery, like a craft distillery. They sort of, yeah. it's it was almost as if one, you know, left their career to start a pharmaceutical company. I mean, it's yeah, just yeah. not the kind of thing that that's people true. just did. So yes. that's sort of the difference. I would say mm-hmm. now that craft distilling has had some time to grow, a lot of the laws have been changed throughout the uh, nation, which has been very helpful um, to make it easier for craft distillers. And with that in mind, you you do have more and more um, becoming craft distillers, but I would say that we're still under around 5,000 in the entire United States of wow. distillers completely. I mean, so th- that includes yeah. not just craft.
1: Right, right. I'm just wondering, and you say laws are changing and say, I just wonder, Uh, if some of those laws go back to after prohibition or something protecting the liquor industry as opposed to the beer industry. Though you say beer is easier to make at home, but I'm just wondering if there's some of that history there as well.
2: Oh, Absolutely. And I mean, the brewers had to deal with the laws first. I mean, they had to get the laws changed to make it possible to do what they're doing. Um, But they were ahead of us. It was, it was, they just, um, there were, there were more of them and they were able to do it. Uh, But you know, even though the small wineries were ahead of the breweries. I mean, yes. we don't realize it, but the, many states have a lot of small wineries mm-hmm. um, that managed to change the laws even before some of the breweries. I mean, in Illinois, there are over 70 wineries and you wouldn't really think that. Missouri has tons of wineries. They even have a university that focuses on teaching how to make wine and yeah. they even have some of the original um, vines from France that even France doesn't have because <laughs> they burned down um, or due to pests uh, were destroyed. So th- there's a very sort of under the radar wine scene in various parts of the United States um, that don't get as much press or interest, yeah. but they also had to be vanguards in changing the laws and, and making things different. For for Koval and for Illinois, we weren't allowed to even have a craft distillery until Koval came on the scene and we I worked with my uh, house rep and and uh, senator to get the laws changed and the laws had not been changed for distilling since the the end of prohibition yes, so this yeah. was the first change to the law that allowed us to do craft distilling in the sense of having a different kind of legal structure for a craft distillery versus a large industrial distillery it reduced the fee so thus reducing the barrier to entry it made it possible for us to uh retail on site which was huge and Mm -hmm. also um you know do tourist tastings. So these were really big changes that made it possible for businesses like mine to grow and develop and as one state started to do it other states you know started to do it too. I mean really it was Wisconsin that was in the Midwest that really had some some great laws on the books before Illinois or Indiana for example.
1: How long did it take you from from the start of okay we're going to do this to getting the law changed so, in getting the license, how long did that take you?
2: Well, we. You know, from starting starting, we decided to start the distillery uh, in 2007. Towards the end of 2007, by 2008, we were up and running and distilling. So that was a pretty quick turnaround.
1: Wow.
0: Um,
2: th- when it came to changing the laws, you know, there were definitely laws in place that would allow us to distill, but certainly not to do retail tours, tastings. Um, have the kind of sort of craft uh, legal framework. So that took from, you know, when we started in 2008, uh, I started working on it probably that, you know, soon thereafter, probably 2009. And then we got the law passed uh, and it was up and running in
1: 2010. Oh, okay, great. And one last question about that. Um, I'm asking as a lay person, What is craft main versus not craft versus, you know. That's a great
2: question.
1: Yeah. That's a
2: great question. And from a legal standpoint, one could say that there's a lot of puffery involved in what the definition is. I mean, you know, some some exaggerate their craft status, but then again, what is a craft brand? So I would say that there are different ways of looking at it one at least how we are craft is that we make absolutely everything ourselves we control our entire supply chain we are involved with the farmers we can trace every bottle back to the field on which the grain was grown we um you know it's all made by us in our facility Uh, We're not outsourcing any part of it at all. We're not buying from an industrial type major large distillery um, as a lot of people do. Uh, And so that for us is craft. Also by law, we are craft in Illinois because we manufacture under 100,000 gallons a year. So that is a limitation placed on craft. Um that then allows us to have a different business model where we are able to do tours, tastings, retail, like have a bar, you know, a tasting room on site. So that is sort of the difference, at least within the Illinois framework. But because the United States, every state decides its own regulations for craft distilleries, there is some variation. So some will say that it's craft, I think if it's under 250,000 proof gallons, some will say it needs to be, you know, um, that uh, they, they put various restrictions, but I would say that it's generally a distillery that has a restriction on how much they are allowed to produce. Now, when I say that, that also then allows for many other distilleries that don't make it themselves that are basically just a brand they create the branding they outsource everything it's it's co-packed in another facility and if they're producing only a certain amount a year then they're also still considered craft so
1: okay. it's
2: very difficult for a consumer to understand uh what is really craft in regard to different frameworks of understanding craft unless they really know how to read a liquor label now there isn't much information on a liquor label as you might have noticed it's one of the only consumer products that does not include any ingredients which of course allows us to put all sorts of things in it we don't and of course Koval we list our ingredients which because it's very easy it's just for our rye whiskey rye 100% yeah. but but you are legally within the united states allowed to put things into alcoholic beverages and not tell the consumer you know whether that is a certain amount of sugar or certain amount of you know uh, citric acid i mean there there are a number of things caramel coloring um these are all things that can land in an alcoholic beverage and the consumer won't know but in addition For some to-
1: consumers like me haven't taken the time to, to look into it uh, anyway. Do Absolutely. You know? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. But the way to really find out if a distillery is making what it, they, you know, what it mm-hmm. says on the label yeah. is that you would have to turn the label over and look and see what the DSP is, which means distilled spirits plant. And okay. there's a number there. And okay. then you can look up that DSP and see where it's actually made. So maybe it is granddaddy's recipe from, you know, uh, Eastern Montana or, but really it's made in Indiana. So, okay. you know, th- that's sort of how you can find out, you know, also it would need to say distilled and bottled by, and then the DSP, okay. if it says produced, they didn't distill it.
1: Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, see, so really good These are little
2: little tricks, but you have to know it in order to be able to, you know, use it to your benefit. So
1: exactly. Um, that um uh maximum that you're able to produce, does that include products for export?
2: Yes, it's everything.
1: <clears throat> we need to change that For <laughs> exactly. export. So they need for to sure. have a separate. Uh, quota or whatever. I love it. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'm saying it here on this podcast and we're gonna there you go. Up. I'm
2: ready to go to DC.
1: Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll support you. Um because uh that's just not right.
2: Yeah no for sure. <laughs> I, I agree it doesn't benefit test right. at all right. in
1: that sense. Exactly. Yes. So now um let's talk a little bit of just tell us about your products. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to post your website, but I'd like people to hear about what you offer.
2: Absolutely. So we make all organic and kosher spirits. Uh, we are primarily known for whiskeys, uh, such as bourbon and rye whiskey, although we make a number of other unique and fun whiskeys using alternative grains, such as millet, oat. We also use a lot of unique finishes, such as an amburana, rye, which is a rye finished in an amburana barrel, for example, oh. um, and then we also make gins. So our our main drivers in the gin category is just a dry gin, uh, which oh. is overproof, so forty seven percent alcohol by volume, and we make a cranberry gin liqueur, which is sort of our answer to the Italian aperitivo culture, uh, oh. which can be mixed beautifully with sparkling water, sparkling wine. And that is, you know, uh, so so basically, our main drivers worldwide would be the bourbon, the rye, the gin, and the cranberry gin, with a few exceptions.
1: Yeah, yeah, really, some really interesting. And and
2: as you mentioned, we make some fun liqueurs and some brandies too. So
1: very cool, very cool. Yeah. Um, All right, so. As owner and president, how have you led the company to where it is today? I mean, we talked a little bit about what you had to do to get going, but but what have you done since then? I, I'd love people to know oh, absolutely. your success story.
2: Sure, sure. I mean, a lot of it was about trying to make sure that we are known in our own backyard, uh, which is, I think, the number one important thing to accomplish uh, when growing a company, uh, at least in our kind of company, liquor company. Um, But then our strategy was one of distribution primarily. So there are a lot of uh, craft distilleries in the United States who have very different business models. Some really their business is a tasting room bar and that is where all their business is. Um, Some, you know, are more you know, we, we were also consultants in the industry for uh, yeah. distilling technology. So we've set up over 200 craft distilleries around the world, um, educated about 3,500 people. And so as, you know, we know a lot of people in the industry. So we see a number of different business models. You know, you have some that have, you know, farm distilleries, you know, where they've got the big sign on the highway and it's, it's a great fun attraction to, you know, during a road trip or it's yes. a, a fun surprise attraction you know, some, so there are many different types of business models, but for us, it was really about distribution. We absolutely wanted to, um, you know, distribute. And in fact, even though we were able, once we had the allowance to, to have, uh, alcohol sales on site, we were allowed to have a tasting room. We didn't have one until only, you know, 20, Well, we tried in 2019, but then there was the pandemic. So it really opened in 2021, but, you know, for primarily, but um, we didn't even have our tasting room open until recently. So it was all about distribution first in the Midwest, then we branched out across the United States, but then it was very much about export also. Um, We felt that export was an absolute natural uh, growth plan for us, not least because we have a lot of European uh, sort of connections and and European background and linguistic abilities, although I wouldn't say that that's necessary for people when they want to engage in export, Uh, but for us it made it a little easier, it made us want to do it um and so and it also just for us it was like it was closing a circle in a certain way Robert learned how to distill from his grandfather you know his his grandfather taught him everything um, his
1: grandfather was Austrian Is that Austrian? Austrian
2: yes okay. yes taught him so much growing up um and and now you know it was it was a real sort of sweet dream in yeah. which you know robert brought these traditions to america it was very much the american dream you know starting this company bringing these traditions from another country to this to the soil here and then exporting it back oh. to where he learned it so that his grandfather can go to a restaurant in his town you know in upper austria and order koval and say my grandson made this. Oh. You know it's it's very sweet. It so is. that it sort is. of was one of the things that we absolutely wanted to do. And because of the fact that we had these sort of very, um, you you know, had these traditions from Europe, which led our style in a way, we had a very different style of making alcohol than was traditional in America. So for example, in America, a, a distillery would normally use both the heart cut that comes off the still as well as the tails. And for those that know about distilling, whenever you distill something doesn't matter if it's sugar, grain, turnips, doesn't matter. It comes off in three parts, heads, hearts, and tails. Heads, very bad for you, make you go blind and crazy. Hopefully nobody uses those. And then you have the heart cut, which is the purest portion of the distillate. It's the the pure ethanol. And then you have the tails, which are not bad for you in the same sense as the heads are certainly. There more alcohol content that comes off the still. It is, they're a little bit oilier. They contain chemical components that you would find in vinegar but they taste and smell like a wet dog by themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you age it in a barrel in a charred barrel for a number of years, it will mellow and the wet dog will go away, but it will be different than our products, which use only the heart cut. So no wet dog in, no wet dog out. It's, it is really just the purest portion of the distillate. And that is a style of alcohol production that you have in Europe for brandy, because a lot of brandies are enjoyed without them having been aged. And so you can't have any tails in it
1: mm-hmm. because there'd
2: be no opportunity for them to mellow. So- I guess
1: people use the tails because it's cheaper.
2: Well, it's more volume. I mean, it's usable alcohol and it's more volume. And when you do age it, you know, in barrels, the barrel acts as a kind of filter and it does mellow those flavors and they create you know, spirits, whiskeys that people love the world over. That being said, it doesn't mean that the market wasn't ready for a different type of whiskey. And with that in mind, you know, a different type of whiskey was already being enjoyed in in places like Japan, where they do appreciate a much cleaner, brighter sort of grain forward whiskey mm-hmm. um and so ours are very similar to japanese whiskeys which is probably why Koval
1: does pretty well in japan a <laughs> bet, bet um in fact i would love to know about uh so as I, I assumed because of your background that you sell to germany and austria and in sure. that area but where else and now you said mm-hmm. japan where um how many countries do you sell to now
2: yeah, now and now it's around 45 export countries. Obviously, yeah. it was more before the war um in Russia uh-huh. and Ukraine, uh, which affected some of our distribution in that region. Uh, we yeah. no longer distribute to Russia and our Ukrainian distributors now in America. So so oh, there's there's that, but um so but we are available across Europe and a good bit of Eastern Europe. We are also in um Japan. We are in uh, South Korea. We are in um, uh, Oceania, so basically Australia, New Zealand. We are in where else are we? We are in South America. We're in Chile. We're I mean we Canada, all all Canada. Yeah. Uh, so pretty pretty large distribution. Uh, we're in China as well. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that that's that's not as developed a market for us as mm-hmm. many of the other export markets that we're in, mm-hmm. um, and we will be launching into South Africa
1: uh, this year. Exciting! Uh, and were you real and very involved in in getting that export program started? Oh yeah. <laughs> Personally, yeah, that's Absolutely. what I would expect. Well, that's wonderful. All right, so, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I want you to talk about when COVID-19 hit, uh, y'all had to make an important transition. Uh, can you tell us a little that, that story?
2: Absolutely. So when that happened and largely because of export, I would say, and I would say that export's not just important because you are able to find a new market for your products. Export is important because you also find new knowledge about your products, about the industry and about other places in the world where you might want to do business. And in part. You know, as COVID was starting, I don't know, probably everyone remembers that it was hitting Europe pretty badly before it came to the United States. And our distributor in Italy was reaching out to us. Um, because we'd planned to do a show in Rome and this, and we mm-hmm. were talking to our distributor in Italy and he was explaining to us. And we were also reaching out to him saying, are you okay? You know, which is another thing because right. we started to get really worried when right. we were seeing, uh, you know, the news and what was going on in Italy.
1: Oh, I and, remember, it, yes.
2: and, and, and he said it was horrendous. And he, it it was almost like in a movie, you know, where he's like, run, save yourself. I mean, it was almost like that. He was like, this is, this will come to America. You need to protect yourselves. Uh, This is really terrible. You know, we don't foresee doing any business for, uh, you know, a long time. Like, you know, we're just trying to keep people you know, out of hospitals. I mean, it was horrible. And he sent us this very foreboding email. And we were reading a lot of European newspapers and we sort of started seeing that, that there were some European distilleries making hand sanitizer for their, you know, for the people because right. uh, there were shortages in Europe. And we started thinking, hmm, our Italian distributor is probably right. That this is coming. There will probably be similar issues. I remember reaching out at the time, you know, to my alderman and to the mayor, uh, the mayor's office. And at first, you know, and, and we offered, we said, you know, we think this is coming we can make supplies if the city needs it, you know, if you need it, you know, happy to do that. And they, they said, no, I think we're good for now. I think we're good. And then, and then like two weeks (laughs) later, we were talking to them. They're like, oh, actually, you know, and so they were very happy, you know, and they were also going to help me get the, um, licensing. So the, the city, And the state actually were very helpful in trying to help us get the licensing to be able to do it because it wasn't legal a distillery in the United States was not legally allowed to make alcohol that wasn't for consumption. Right. And so When they realized that this was actually necessary, they were very, very helpful in um, you know, working with the TTB and the FDA to try and make sure that we would have those allowances. And when we did, we shifted, as soon as we got the allowance, We'd already prepared because we sort of assumed this was going to happen. Um, We prepared, we had the supplies, you know, because we needed to have all sorts of things, chemicals, things that we don't normally work with in our distillery. We had had to change the whole setup of the distillery um, and then, uh, you know, taught our team how to make it. And we thought what we would do at first was just make, you know, you know, make a few runs of it and donate it and then go back to whiskey. (laughs) And then we realized very quickly after we did that, Mm -hmm. um, and the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about it, um, we started getting calls from all over the United States, literally. I mean, I'm talking hospitals, police departments, fire departments, I, I mean, especially nursing homes. I mean, especially nursing homes. Um oh, We had directors of nursing homes crying. It was it was horrible. Oh, and so no. all of a sudden, oh, my no. team, which was very much in the business of joy and fun and party and great conversation over wonderful cocktail. Be, got into the business of almost, you know, uh, trauma center type work where they were running the phones, answering calls from desperate people trying to find hand sanitizer. Um, And, and these weren't just consumers. I mean, these were really, these were institutions. These were uh, you know, I, I mean, the stories are oh, unbelievable. I mean, we had ambulances just drive up saying that they'd been using vodka. And let me tell you, vodka is not high enough proof to, you know, so I, I mean, but the, but I mean, if that's all you got, I mean, so they had been using vodka um and the same pair of gloves, like for the for days. I mean, it was horrible. And so oh, they were- And so, yeah, so we we basically shifted everything we donated um to all the hospitals the uh, the every single ward in the city of chicago to um, all of the frontline workers um, and we were donating donating and then people were helping us by um, helping us buy the supplies so that we could keep donating because we were running basically the entire distillery without you know selling our alcohol exactly and then it got to the point where um you know we had to start doing some business with it as well so then companies were reaching out to us so we would sell business to business hand sanitizer we you know we sold to the railroads
1: i mean i remember people would put their logo you know i mean i remember uh some place some hotel or something gave them out with their label it was somebody else obviously was making it so yeah right. yeah i remember and- I remember when it really became clear and I remember going everywhere trying to find hand sanitizer. And I found it 5 below had these big bottles. Right, right. And, but yeah, it was that's a wonderful story about you know just part of what you've done in your community and I know you've done other things. Well, and
2: and we didn't do it alone. There was no way to do that alone. Literally, we had the help of so many other companies that donated bottles, that donated um, items, that donated... Um, time, local restaurants that would come and bring food for my team, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, local elevator company, uh, you know, Kone that donated uh, uh, their truck to help deliver um, to various hospitals and nursing homes, as well as, uh, you know, one of their team members to drive it around. So, I mean, this was literally not Just us. This was really so many people coming together and trying to make a difference in the community, and it was really, it was so hard, but it was one of the most beautiful experiences that I've had, and just made me love Chicago even more.
1: (laughs) Oh, that it's a, it is a beautiful story. I love it. And um, speaking of. Stories. Um, I just want to uh, wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a few of your export stories. Uh, you know, we we'd like to do that on this podcast. Um, so can you, if you have a absolutely, few... absolutely.
2: I mean, one was it? just the knowledge, as we were saying. You know, as our segue to talk about COVID, how you gain so much knowledge. You know, and you never know how it will help you. You know, when you go to other places. And you see what people are doing, and that can help influence your business and how you do business. And I would say I'll use Italy as another example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so not just for for COVID related things, but also for product related things. You know, in exporting to Italy. And uh, to Europe, it became very obvious to us that having um, a a product that could be used in a spritzer was going to be very important. Uh, We didn't see it as much in the United States at the time. You know, obviously now you have big brands that have come over and you see them all the time, (laughs) but but, uh, we wanted to make something. And so it became sort of an inspiration for us through our export into Europe to then create another product that we made for, you know, the United States and now also export all over the world. So I feel that that is some, some kind of, there's such a synergy in business, as long as, you know, you're keeping your eyes open and you're seeing what's possible. It's not just about shipping the pallet. There's so much more that goes into it. Right. i would say also with regard to export as we we talked a little bit about japan earlier
1: mm-hmm. i would say
2: that japan is an amazing market to enter but it's 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 one of these markets where i feel you know, if you are willing to invest in the market and invest in having somebody in the market that understands, you know, the the culture, the language, the business environment, you know, to give suggestions as to what might work or what's trending, uh, you know, exactly. these things are very important and they've been very essential to us in growing our business in Japan. We do have a full time market manager in Japan, and we found that that has been especially Especially important for doing business there yeah. um, and you know also with regard to export stories I mean here's a cautionary tale is that I would say that for anybody interested in export you know and also particularly you know in well, I would say probably any industry. I so I can't really speak of any other ones, but I would say <laughs> about any industry is okay. that one really has to do one's homework, you know, when it comes to finding the right distributor. Um, but in addition to that, one should also protect oneself, and that we have some great programs in the United States for doing that.
0: Right. Um,
2: both while you're seeking to find a good distributor, you know, we've got programs in many different states. I know Illinois has a step program uh where they help you know uh, reimburse you for you know some of your travel as well as booth fees translation fees uh for your pos material and i'm sure every state has some sort of program similar. every
1: state except for tennessee and and alaska and i'm working on that
2: <laughs> aha Well, there, there you go. So, so, you know, the states that have the benefit of these kinds of programs, you know, the companies should really take advantage of them because that will help your bottom line, but you will also find other people who can help guide you um, in the right direction. But I would say also to protect yourself, it's very important you know to at least for us to work with xm bank which we've worked with yeah. um you know where they sort of ensure you know your what, what you're shipping over there um and so if you don't get paid it's not a complete loss mm-hmm. and we've found that that has been very important not because we've had a complete loss like that but yeah. because when you start thinking you might they can step in And you know, it's sometimes it's as simple as writing a little letter or just saying, um, by the way, it's not us you'll have to deal with if you don't pay. Right. It's the US government. So
1: it helps. It Um, does
2: help a little bit.
1: And without naming any names or anything, have you had experience where and I'm sure you have because everybody has of somebody purporting to be someone they weren't, you know, that wanted to be a distributor is really a total Mm -hmm. bakery or something.
2: Yes, but we've never gone with anyone like that. So yeah. in doing our due diligence, we've we've been able to vet people and we've figured out, you know, oh, that's definitely a bit of a charlatan over there or or um, they seem a bit too dodgy. So we've we've avoided those types of characters, but they're certainly out there nice. and they're fishing too, which is really not good. Um, we've had other types of problems. Uh, we've had trademark problems. And where we've had people try and steal our trademarks, our branding, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the kinds of things that are very difficult to, you know, you can try and protect yourself, but you can't really avoid these things. If they're going to happen, they're gonna happen. And then you just kind of have to deal with it. You can protect yourself by registering your trademarks, which we have, but even then you can have someone rip off your design And you find out very quickly that it's really a 50-50 chance that you'll win that kind of a lawsuit. And
1: and their courts, I mean, depending on the country, in some courts, it's just so, um, and I assume the Department of Commerce has, their like local offices are helpful in advocating against or, or researching or, or whatever. Have they been helpful in, in those situations Somewhat.
2: Yes. Yeah. But I would say that we've, we've um, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of it ourselves.
1: Yeah. Well, once well,
2: it gets to a certain level, yeah, you're kind of on your own.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I just want people to be aware. You
0: oh, know, for sure.
1: Issues and um, you know, it's so worthwhile, but you have to be careful and do your homework and do diligence. Oh, yes, and so, very much so. Um, and,
2: and it's very good to really, you know, go to these trade shows for whatever your industry is, meet the people, meet right. them personally, but then meet other people that already work with them. You know, right. that gives you also a bit of a insight.
1: Absolutely. Um, so we're going to go through this last part kind of quickly, but- um, sure. Tell us what the experience is when someone wants to visit your distillery. What what's that? Oh,
2: there are many experiences. So we offer tours, uh, tastings. We have a tasting room, uh, sort of bar where people can order cocktails. It is an outdoor patio when it's not oh. winter in Chicago because. <laughs> There's no outdoor patio, only in the <laughs> summer, and uh, we also do all sorts of classes. You know, holiday related. Uh, you know, uh, marshmallow and and hot chocolate with bourbon type oh. thing. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on at the distillery. But in general, anyone that wants to come visit us, we do offer tours during the week. Also, on the weekends, one can register online um, and come to the tour. And, and any classes are also listed um, on our website, events, oh, cool. classes, everything.
1: Well, well, we'll link to that so people can find it. And that's where I'm going next time I come to Chicago. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Okay, this is my last question. This sure. Is- from your biography, you have been inducted into Disciple Descoffier. And I'm saying it wrong, but what is that? I'm so curious.
2: Yes, that is a French organization for uh, culinary, I guess, specialists. You know, it, it's not just um, restaurateurs or chefs, or but it's anyone in sort of the culinary world that they oh. feel have made a special impact or done have done something unique or interesting. So my husband and I were very honored to have been inducted into that order, and um, it's 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 just a real honor and privilege.
1: Congratulations! I think that's thank so you. Cool. Well, I mean, we could go on and on because this is so much fun to talk to you, Sonnet. And <laughs> thank I love you. subject and I love what you're doing and I love what you're doing for export. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, this was really great. Absolutely. And one more little tidbit. Anyone that's interested
2: in getting started, I would say start with the deck. You know, I do believe every state does have a deck. Am, am I right? Do. I think, oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So, Some have more than uh, one district
2: right. export council deck. Exactly. And and the district export council, they are business owners like, you know, me and yeah. and my colleagues yeah. and people who um, are engaged in export and know about export and want to help other businesses achieve success through export and they can start connecting the dots to other further you know um, help. but Thanks. I think that's a great place to start for anyone.
1: Great. I'm so glad you said that. Absolutely. So anyway, so this was great to our listeners. We'd love to get a conversation going about this episode, you know, as well as general discussions about exporting. So please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com, where all of our current and past podcasts are available. Like I said, I'll be posting contact information for Coval Distillery on their episode webpage, and you can ask questions or post comments there. Or we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. So, you know, we're creating a community of exporters here, and we'd love for your voice to be heard. Thanks again, Sonnet. Thank you for being here. Thank me. you, Betsy. It was a pleasure. All right. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much. We'll see you again, or hear you again, or you'll hear us again. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting.